pray the Lord. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come again, Lord, to worship your name, worship your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who gave his life as a ransom for his sheep, for his people, those whom the Father gave to him before the foundation of the world. And it is these that he came and redeemed, and it is these that he has caused to be born again. And Lord, we thank you for the gospel of grace. We thank you for the hope that you've given us in him. We thank you for the blood of Christ that goes deeper than the stain has gone. And Lord, may this be the hope of your people that they have been accepted in the beloved, not by anything that they have done in themselves, for themselves, but what Christ accomplished for them in his life and in his death on the cross. And so, Lord, I pray that you cause your people not to get tired of hearing about Christ, to always be looking to him, to always be rejoicing in his righteousness, in the rich robes of vindication that he has given us. Lord, we pray for your people. We pray even now for those who are in France who are going through this time of trial. We pray, Lord, if you would have your elect among them, that you may draw them to yourself even because of this. And we pray, Lord, for grace to abound. We pray and thank you for this hour. May you bless the teaching of your word for the sake of Christ. We pray in his precious name. Amen. John 8 28 to 29, or 28 and 29. John 8, 28 and 29. So John 8, 28 and 29 says, Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, But as my father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. When you lift up the son of man, is our sermon title. When you lift up the son of man. There's a lot of things to say. When you have just two verses to talk about, that always tells you that we have a lot of things to say. We can't go beyond. And I just discovered that I didn't even talk about verse 29. I didn't even talk about verse 29. So we may have to have a separate sermon to deal with verse 29. I only addressed (laughs) verse 28. (laughs) Lord have mercy. (laughs) It's a blessed thing to go in the Bible and just be looking for Jesus and the Lord shows you the things of Christ. And when I come to the text, I don't really know much about the text until I actually come to it. Even as I'm looking at verse 29, I have some few things that I know about it. 
But when I come to it to write a sermon about it, I just get amazed by what keeps coming. And so that's what happens when you make everything about Christ. If you make the gospel, you make the church about you and something else that is not Christ, God has no interest in that. He won't give you any understanding. But as soon as you make everything about Jesus, you'll be amazed by how, how much God gives you. So we preach and teach Jesus Christ. And it is my hope and prayer that you will fall in love with the Jesus of John. And I want you to see him much more in more glorious light. Because to know Christ is to have eternal life. I want you to see him as the only reason you exist. And the only reason why you have hope. Your hope in Christ will not fail. Because your salvation is not about you. Your salvation is all about him. It's about his honor. His exaltation. And God will not fail to exalt himself. And so he will not fail to save you. Your salvation is tied to the honor of Christ. And that is why it won't fail. So we don't preach a gospel that loses those that Christ saved. There's no gospel in that. So we need to listen carefully to what God is teaching us about Christ. Because that's where our hope is. And that is where we have our faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And Christ is the word of God. So when we hear about Christ, that's what grows faith. So this is where we are in our text. The Jews have been accusing Jesus of making self-witness and making very huge claims about himself. Jesus was not claiming that he was a carpenter or a shepherd. If he did, or if he was, they would not have had any problems with that. Since that would bring him to their level. They would not worry about Jesus saying, guess what, I'm a carpenter, I can make you some drawers. They did not have any problems with that. They only had problems with him because he was claiming to be more. He was claiming to be more. They said to him in John 10.33, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy and because you, being a man, make yourself God. That's the problem. So they are okay with him being a man, but beyond that, they say, Jesus, you need some stoning. You could use some stoning for blasphemy. And many people in our day are okay with a Jesus who is just a good moral man. 
who has some very useful things to say, but will not bow down to one who claimed to be God. But they shall all bow down, as we shall see, because he says, when I have been lifted up, you shall know that I am he. So the struggle between Jesus and the Jews was about the identity of the person of Christ. And even today, many, many don't believe what the Bible actually says about him. Even if they profess to be Christians. But if someone does not settle the identity of Jesus, then they can never come to believe the true gospel. Because Jesus himself is the gospel. Jesus himself is salvation. The Lord is salvation. If one cannot settle the identity of Christ, they are still not born again. The Holy Spirit does not give you a new birth and leave you thinking that Jesus is like the Dalai Lama or Mohammed or some exalted angel like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses would say. The Holy Spirit confesses and says, Jesus is Lord. And none can say Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. Very, very important testimony. Who do you say that I am? That is a question that has to be settled before we say anything else about Jesus. But the question of the testimony or witness of his identity has been causing problems ever since Jesus came on the scene. In John 5, you may have to go with me because I'm going to read a huge section. John 5, verses 31 to 39. Jesus has said to the Jews, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There's another who bears witness of me and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from men, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. 
It's an issue of testimony of the identity of Christ. And Jesus says, I have enough witnesses to bear testimony of who I am. I bear witness of myself and my father bears witness of me and the works that I do bear witness of me. But ultimately, he does not need testimony from man. He does not need the testimony of John the Baptist. He does not need anyone who is from below to testify of him. Because men are not able to know him unless he has been revealed to them by the Father. And so he said in Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been delivered to me by my father. All things. And no one. That's a universal negative. No one. Knows the son except the father. Nor does anyone know the father except the son. And the one to whom the son wills to reveal him. So Jesus has to be revealed. To anyone. By the father. And the Father has to be revealed to you by Jesus. If you do not know Jesus, you do not know God. Period. It doesn't matter all pretensions of religion. If you do not know the identity of Christ, you do not know God. And cannot know God. And that means you are still in your sin and the wrath of God abides on you. The doctrine of Jesus, the teaching of the Bible, is that we cannot know God outside knowing Jesus. And anyone who claims to know God without knowing who Jesus is, is a liar and is lying to themselves and others. There is none, absolutely no one, who can come to the Father but by Christ. Jesus was not playing games. He was telling the truth. He was not formulating another way to God. He says, He is the way. There's no other way. And there's none who can come to the Son unless the Father draws them. And there's none who can come to the Son Unless the spirit quickens them, makes them alive. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all involved in bringing you to the Son. Not Benny Hinn, not Stan's favorite preachers. <laughs> Jesus said in John 5 verse 36, But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. The works that Jesus did bore witness. They were for witnessing of the person and identity of Christ. They were not for starting an international deliverance and healing ministry. They bore witness to the fact that he was the son of God. He was the son of man, the Messiah, 
the Christ. And for this, he did not need validation from men. There's no work of Jesus that needs validation from men. There's not a single man who can choose Jesus because they can't. They don't know who Jesus is and they would not be able to pick him out from a crowd of people. There's no man who can validate the person of Jesus by giving their life to Jesus. You have no life. To give to Jesus. You were dead in trespasses and sins. It is Jesus who gave his life for the sheep. It is Jesus who gave his life as a ransom for his people. For you and I. It is Jesus who gave you his righteousness. So why are people, why are preachers reversing clear teaching on how salvation actually works? It is because they have not been taught of God. A sinner cannot. A sinner cannot give their life to Jesus. It is bad theology. Jesus is God. He is the life and the light of the world. According to John chapter 1. It is he who gives life. Because he has life in himself. Life in the context of salvation. Life. When Jesus is talking about life, he is talking more than biological life. But even then, he sustains biological life. But life in the context of salvation is only given on the cross by the one who was lifted up. And life to the sinner is only received by repenting and believing in Jesus As your only righteousness before God. But those who repent and believe. Do so. Because they already have life. (laughs) For a dead person cannot repent and have faith. Repentance and faith are signs of life. They are not causes of life. Faith and repentance are not conditions of salvation that are produced by the sinner by their own will and power. You cannot repent and you cannot believe by yourself. You are not able to. Jesus Christ alone is the condition of salvation. And the cross is the cause of life. The cross is the cause of your salvation. Jesus Christ is the cause of your life. The new birth is the cause of life, spiritual life. The Holy Spirit is the cause of life. Faith and repentance are gifts from God to those that God has given the life of Christ. When we say faith and repentance are gifts, we mean that they are not naturally found in sinners. Faith and repentance are not found in the basement of sinners. In the pantry. Like, okay, I have a pantry full of faith and repentance. Like chicken noodles. and God is he who grants and works them by his power. 
in the elect, causing them to will and to do for his good pleasure. So if you are desiring the things of Christ, it's God who is working. And if you are doing the things of Christ, it's God who is doing it. But the works of Christ testified that he was the son of God and had been sent of God. And that he was the Messiah. When Jesus uses the term son of man, that's a messianic title. It's a messianic title. And so he comes and says in John 8, 14 to 15. Even if I bear witness of myself. Do you see that it's still from chapter 5 of John. It's witness and witness and witness. And we are in John 8 and we still are working on the witness and testimony of the person of Christ. So this has to be very important. John 8, 14 and 15 says, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. So see the distinction. Jesus says, even if I bear witness of myself, his witness is true. Why? Because he says, I know where I came from and where I am going. But you, in contrast, do not know where I come from and where I am going. And you have another problem. You... Judge according to the flesh. But he judges no one according to the flesh. He does not use the same criteria of judgment or assessment of people. And because they are from below, they are not able to make a proper judgment or assessment of his claims about himself and his gospel. And that is the problem with the world. The world cannot make a proper assessment of Jesus' claims about himself and Jesus' claims about them. They are poor judges of spiritual things because they are wilderness dwellers. They are darkness dwellers and they fail to see the light that is in Christ Jesus. And the end result of their spiritual darkness is that they cannot go where he is going. For Jesus is going back to the Father and they can't come. They can't come because they have refused the only way to come to the Father. And they can't come because they can't. They have no ability to come. They can't come because they have refused the only cash bearer, the only sacrifice there is to remove sin, to remove their curse. And so when he goes back to the Father, he goes back through the cross. And when he goes on the cross, he is going as a cash bearer for his people that he may bring them to the Father. And since he is going to the cross without them, they can't come. If they are not going with Christ on the cross, and so they can't come to the Father. So they can't come because of their sin. 
And that sin is unbelief. And Jesus does not remove their unbelief. He does not remove the unbelief of those who are not his. All men born of a woman are born in this state of unbelief. Unless God regenerates them. Those who reject Christ do so because of unbelief. And as I said, their sin was not paid for by Christ. You and I were unbelievers. But here is the difference. Christ paid for the sin of unbelief for his people. He paid that for us. The elect in Christ are granted the gift of faith and are enabled by God the Holy Spirit to believe in Christ. Otherwise, we also would perish. And so Jesus said in John 8, 24, Therefore I say to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And he would again say in John 8, 28, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. In verse 24 of John 8, Jesus says, If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And then in verse 28 of John 8, he said again, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. What is that saying? Jesus connects salvation. Salvation is the removal of sin and condemnation. Salvation is the removal of sin and condemnation. And he says, if you believe that I am he, these will be removed from you. And so he connects the revelation of his identity and salvation. He connects his identity and salvation and says, these are inseparable. And because they are inseparable, I, when I have been lifted up, they shall be removed from those who are in me. But we need to work on the language of lifting Christ. And that's going to be our subject for the next two and a half hours. But Jesus says, my identity and my work of salvation is tied to this activity of him being lifted up. What does it mean to lift up? This was Jesus' language of crucifixion. It's Jesus' expression of crucifixion. John 3.14. Jesus said to Nicodemus, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So being lifted up is Jesus' reference to Numbers 21, verses 5 to 9, which was the raising of the bronze serpent 
in the wilderness by Moses for the children of Israel who were dying because of the fiery serpents. And Jesus would again use that language in John 12, 32 to 34 and say, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying what death he would die. So that explains to us what Jesus was saying. The people answered him, verse 34, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So you see, the lifting up again and the identity of Christ is in question. And so the lifting up of Jesus primarily in John's understanding was about Christ being put on the cross. But the people in John chapter 12 verse 34, the ones that Jesus was talking to, said they had heard from the law that the Messiah would remain forever. And this they said in an attempt to make an evaluation of Jesus' claims of being the Messiah. Where did they hear from the law? Where did they hear that from the law? When you're talking about the law, the first five books of the Bible are the law, but not always. Depending on the context, the law is all the whole Old Testament. The whole Old Testament is the law and the prophets. Okay, so sometimes they are collectively called the law. So what they heard about the Messiah can be found in Psalm 89. Verses 3 to 4, and we're going to read again Psalm 89, 19 to 29. Psalm 89, 3 to 4. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. Psalm 89, 19 to 29. Then you spoke in a vision to your Holy One and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found my servant David with my holy oil. I have anointed him with whom my hand shall be established. Also, my arm shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. I will beat down his foes before his face and plague those who hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him and in my name his horn shall be exalted. Also, I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also, I will make him my firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth. My mercy I'll keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also I'll make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. That's the description of the Messiah. And this was a restating of the covenant that God made with 
David in 2 Samuel 7, 11 to 6. We are not going to go and read that. But this is just a restating of that covenant. And so the Jews are right that the Messiah's throne is forever. But they do not understand what is going on. They know the scriptures, but lack revelation of how the Messiah was to remain forever. He remains forever by first dying to remove sin and then resurrecting and ascending on high. And so the Messiah has to be lifted up. But they shall know. They shall know that it is he when he has been lifted up. And if you have been following what John has been teaching us, John uses double or layered meaning in his theological expressions. The lifting up of Jesus does not end on the cross. The idea is, if he is lifted up, he is continuously lifted up without end. Remember, he has descended from heaven. He has humbled himself by adding human nature and coming and dwelling in the tents of the below and becoming a lowly servant who cleans up the mess of his people, who cleans up the sin of his people. A servant always does the dirty and unclean work. And Jesus Christ is Jehovah's servant to clean up your mess. That is humiliation. But because he has been humiliated as the lowly servant, he is the one who is the least in the kingdom. Jesus Christ is the least in the kingdom. He is the alpha and the omega. He brackets the lowliness and the highest. So Jesus is the least servant in the kingdom. And because he's the least, he is also the greatest. And that was Jesus' theology. So Jesus is the greatest because he was the least of God's servants. And he now has to be exalted. And the cross is the beginning of that ascent to glory. And so he prayed in John 17, verses 1 and 5, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you. And now, verse 5, Oh, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. But Jesus did not climb a ladder to get on the cross. He was lifted up onto the cross by man because sinful men have to give him glory. They have to lift their hands to him even as he removed their sin. But he was lifted up from the grave by God, by himself, and by God the Holy Spirit. And he ascended back into heaven where again he is lifted up on the right hand of God. 
So the lifting up of Jesus has no end. And all those things are in view in the language of John. And so again to the question of the disciples, let's look at this because it's important. The question of the disciples in John 12 verse 34, they said, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Don't miss John's writing. The son of man must be lifted up. It has to happen or else he would have failed in his mission. Jesus will and must be lifted up. That is, he has to be exalted. That's what that is saying. He has to be exalted in your salvation. It will happen. He has to be lifted up. So if that has to happen, if you and I or anyone think that they shared glory with Christ in their salvation, they are not hearing what is being said. The people spoke more than they understood. Yes, the son of man must be lifted up because that is what God purposed from eternity to be done. It is the reason why salvation is necessary. Salvation is necessary because the son of man must be glorified. He must be lifted up. Salvation is necessary not because of sin, but because of the glory of Christ. Sin is a servant of God. It's a means to an end. And the end is the glorification of Christ. Because by its removal on the cross, guess what? Christ is glorified. And I wish preachers would understand. And, and, and stop saying foolish things. There was no accident that happened in the Garden of Eden. Everything happened as God purposed to happen. For the glory of Christ. But this theology is not peculiar to Apostle John. Apostle Paul also speaks to this humiliation and glorification of Christ. In Philippians 2. Let's go there. Philippians 2, 5 to 11. We'll keep coming to these verses and every time we bring a different angle. Philippians 2, 5 to 11 says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but met himself of no reputation, taking the form of a born servant and coming in the likeness of man. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow. 
of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Son of Man must be lifted up not only on the cross, but God has also highly exalted him, highly lifted him up. How? By giving him the name which is above every name. Of the names that can be named. That in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See that the exaltation of Christ, even in Philippians 2, is connected to his humiliation. So the death of Christ, his obedience to the point of death, was so that Jesus would be confessed as Lord by all of creation. And the cross is the center, is the pinnacle of that work of the exaltation of Christ. Jesus is not made Lord by our confession. It's a popular formula. I am making Jesus Lord and Savior. No, you're lying. Jesus is not made Lord by our confession. God has already made him Lord in Christ. To confess. Homologia. Homo means same. Logos words. To confess means to say the same words as. God has already made Jesus Christ Lord. And in salvation we are made to realize that Jesus is already lifted up as Lord and Christ. To the glory of God the Father. And so when we confess. We are coming and saying the same things. That God has already said about Christ. So Jesus is the name above every name. There is no other name that can be named. That is above the name of Christ. In power and in authority. In majesty. In honor. In dominion. You name it. There's no other name that is above the name of Christ. But what does that mean? If the name of Jesus is above every name, it means that Jesus is the name of God. Because if Jesus is not God, he cannot have a name that is above that of God. Jesus is the name of God for only the name of God is above every name. (laughs) There's none above him. So in salvation and in judgment, every knee and every tongue shall see the glory of the Son of God and they shall confess him as Lord. Whether they like it or not, it's going to happen. So sin is necessary for you and I to see the glory of Christ in its proper light. You'd never understand Christ this way If you're not a sinner, Christ is exalted as Lord and Christ in your salvation. Let's keep working this some more. 
we have one and a half hours. Jesus said, when you have lifted me up, then you shall know that I am he. Let us talk about that. Jesus was saying that when I go on the cross, you shall know that I am he. The cross, according to Jesus, is the pinnacle of his work that bears testimony of his identity. The identity of Christ as the son of God and as the Messiah is born on the cross. But what was Jesus saying or claiming by I am he? Isaiah 43, 10 to 13. You have to go there. Isaiah 43, 10 to 13. You are my witnesses, says the Lord. And, and is capitalized. And my servant whom I have chosen. That you may know and believe me. And understand that I am. He. Before me there was no God formed. Nor shall there be after me. I even I. Am the Lord. And besides me. There is no savior. I have declared and saved. I have proclaimed. And there was no foreign God among you. Therefore, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. You are my witnesses, that I am God. Indeed, before the day was, I am he. And there's no one who can deliver out of my hand. I work and who will reverse it. When I have been lifted up, you shall know that I am he, I'm he, I'm he. I am is the self-designation of God in the Old Testament. We have talked about this many times. We see that with Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3, 13 and 14. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they said to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. You go tell them that. And this I am has come. And he says, when I have been lifted up, you shall know that I am he. I am your God. I am the Holy One of Israel. I am the God of your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I am your only Savior. For besides me, there's no other God or Savior. And if you deny me, there's no other hope for you. Therefore, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. So the cross is a testimony that Jesus Christ is God. There's no one else who can deliver you from your sins because your sin requires one who is God to remove it. But in what way was the lifting up of Jesus testified that it was he, that is, he was God and that he was the Messiah? Let's go to the crucifixion. Matthew 27, 38 to 54. We're going to keep hunting Jesus until we... Find the testimony. Matthew 27, 38 to 54, and we're going to read everything. 
Then two robbers were crucified with him. One on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, or Eli, Eli, I think it's Eli, Eli, Lama Sabatani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Verse 51, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, surely, this was the Son of God. See what happened at Mount Calvary. At the death of Christ. We have the darkness. From the sixth hour. To the ninth hour. That would have been from 12 midday. To 3 p.m. But at the particular time. That Christ died. Three things happened. The veil of the temple. Was torn in two. From top to bottom. A strong earthquake. That split rocks. And thirdly, graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. They were not taking a nap. They had died. It's not just someone thinking they were just taking a nap. No, no, you don't take a nap in a grave. They were dead. <laughs> Let us get some understanding of what is happening. We'll begin with the temple. The temple had a veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And it was only the high priest and nobody else who yearly on the day of atonement would go beyond the veil to approach God with the blood of a sacrifice. Only the high priest. Not any other priest. Only the high priest 
could go beyond the veil. And that once a year. And, and the holy of holies was separated from the holy place by a thick curtain, the veil, and could not easily be ribbed with human hands. But at the death of Christ, we are told the veil or the curtain of the temple was torn in two and looked to the direction from top to bottom. We'll talk about that. Let's find out what the Bible says about the veil. That veil, according to the right of Hebrews, represented the body of Christ that was torn by God because of our sin. Hebrews 10. 19 to 22. Hebrews 10, 19 to 22. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest. You see the call? The call is calling you to enter into the holiest of places that you before had no right, no access, or else you are dead. Having boldness to enter the holiest By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies with the blood of dead animal sacrifices. But in Christ, God has opened the way to approach him by a different way. The writer says, a new and living way, the way of the blood of Christ, the resurrected Christ is our high priest and mediator. It's a new and living way as against a dead way of trying to enter before God. And now that the curtain has been torn, there's no more separation between the holy of holies and the holy place. There's no more separation between you and God. There's now full and direct access to the holy of holies, even by us, because the final and perfect sacrifice and perfect blood has been given. We can now approach God directly without any other sinner interceding for us. So the renting of the veil makes a mockery of Roman Catholicism and the Pope. We do not need the Pope to get to God. We only need the blood of Christ and Christ is our high priest. Look again at the direction in which the veil was rent. It was rent from top to bottom and not bottom to top. Why? Because if access to God has to be opened, it is only by the renting of the body of Christ by God and not man. It's God who opens the way for you to approach him. Salvation is the work of God alone. 
And so he alone rents and opens the way of salvation in Christ Jesus. Jesus was not punished by the Jews or the Romans. Jesus' body was rent by God himself. See also what happened. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. There was an earthquake when Christ died. Salvation is a cosmic event. Even angels look into these things to try and understand what God is doing. Principalities and powers were disarmed of their spoil on the cross. He made a public spectacle of them. That's what Apostle Paul says. And the rocks, the stony hearts of those who are in Christ were rent on the cross. The stony hearts. That's how much, that is how much it took for your heart to be rent to receive the gospel. Your heart was as hard as those rocks. Granite. I know people love granite countertops. <laughs> and those who were dead in Christ were resurrected. They were resurrected, I don't think immediately. I suspect that they were resurrected after the resurrection of Christ. Because the Bible says Christ is the first fruit of the resurrection. So Christ had to resurrect first. But we are being conformed to the pattern of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. So these could not have resurrected before him. So they were resurrected after Christ's resurrection. But they were asleep. And you too were asleep in Christ before the cross. Chosen in Christ, but asleep. Dead in trespasses and sins. That's what is being said. Until your stony heart was rent by the cross. It is the cross that gives life. It is the cross that gives life. We have our life in the death of Christ. And to all that Jesus said, when you lift up the son of man, you shall know that I am he. What was the summary and testimony of all that which happened at the death of Christ? What was the summary of that? The summary of all that was given to the Roman centurion. Truly, this was the son of God. And that's it. And that's how it ended. Truly, this was the Son of God. So, according to the Roman centurion, everything that he witnessed could not have been unless Jesus was the Son of God. The events of the death of Christ were testimony that he was God. For there was none who had ever been crucified who in his death was giving life, causing earthquakes, causing darkness, and causing curtains to be ripped. Never had happened. And you and I, it is only when we see Jesus Christ lifted up that you shall know that he is truly the son of God. When your heart has been rent. And your stony heart split. Then you shall know that he 
truly is the son of God. Many people in the church, preachers and congregants, do not believe in a Jesus that is lifted up. They are not seeing him as lifted up. And if you do not see Jesus Christ as lifted up in your salvation, in your justification, in your sanctification, then you have believed in a false Jesus and a false gospel. Your heart is yet to be split by the cross. If your heart is split, you become alive. You get resurrected to the true gospel. Jesus has to remain lifted up, which means you have to continue to see him lifted up. Isaiah saw him lifted up. When you see Jesus, you can only see him lifted up. And if you are believing in the true gospel, it can only be the one that lifts Christ up. And so when I have been lifted up, means many things in Jesus' language. When Christ has been lifted up on the cross, has been lifted up from the grave, has been lifted up from the earth, and has been lifted up to the right hand of God, all men shall know that it is he. There shall be no one who will not know who Jesus Christ is. As we have been told by Apostle Paul that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. It's going to happen. So the gospel, the gospel then is the revelation of the lifting up of Jesus in glory. That's what is happening. In the gospel, Jesus is lifted up. As the one that the Father loves and to whom all things belong. Jesus is lifted up as the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ is lifted up as the only Savior, as the only one who gives life and righteousness, as the only one who forgives sins. The judge of all men, the living and the dead. Jesus shall be honored. As the father is honored. And so a theology of salvation that does not lift Jesus Christ completely is a false theology. It may have a mingling, some mixing of truth with it. But it's false if it does not give all the honor to Christ. A gospel that says men have some other conditions to meet in themselves, to get saved, is saying Jesus Christ cannot be completely lifted up for his own work. Since he did some incomplete and imperfect work. But the scriptures say of Christ, by one offering, he perfected all those who are being sanctified. By one offering, he perfected our salvation. There are no other conditions of salvation that have to be met by those who are the fallen. Jesus Christ is the only condition of salvation. People need to know that. 
If God required a condition for salvation, Jesus Christ performed it. God required faithfulness, and Jesus was faithful and obedient even to death on the cross. God required the death of those who broke his law, and Jesus died on their behalf. He tasted death for them. Jesus tested death for you and I in a way that we will never test death ever. And to be truthful, you will never know what it means to die. You shall never know what it means to die. Never. God required for his law to be honored and Jesus completely honored it. And the death that he tested is different from just passing out. Jesus was not just hit by a car or a hammer on the head and died. He tested the wrath of God. The omnipotent power of God was conducted through his body. And he safely grounded it for you and I. But not before the world had been plunged into darkness. All the omnipotent power of God was poured on Jesus and he grounded it safely for you and I. And his face was mud more than that of any man. So there was a cosmic power outage when Jesus died. Because this was the most significant work of the Son of God. The work of recreation of his people on the cross. When Jesus was lifted up on the cross, he had entered in the bathing room, the maternity ward, to deliver his people. Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Jesus connected the rebirthing of Nicodemus with the cross. When I have been lifted up. How? From above, from Mount Calvary. When the Son of God is lifted up with the travails and anguish like one who was with child. And he carried us in his bosom as if he was pregnant. And to this God would say in Isaiah 53, he shall see the labor of his soul as a woman in labor and be satisfied. God was satisfied with the labor of Christ on the cross as he was giving birth to children who belong to God. Let's keep working this. We are finishing. We just have another hour. The curse on Eve in Genesis 3.16. Genesis 3.16 was, To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and, and your conception." In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Remember, Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus has come to do that which the first Adam could not do. The first Adam could not raise children to God who were after the image of God. It's Jesus Christ who is raising children who are after the image of Christ. The image of God. And if Jesus has to carry the curse of Adam on our behalf, he has to 
carried on the cursed tree, he too has to carry the curse of Eve because of their sin. Listen to what God said to Eve. He said, he promised to multiply. No. He promised to greatly multiply. Eve's sorrow at conception. And for her to experience great pain as she brought forth children, but her children were the fallen. Her children were the fallen. They did not bear the image of God as Adam had the image of God. They were born after the likeness of Adam, the fallen Adam. But now Jesus Christ has to enter into that curse to remove it. Also as a woman who is with child. And so he said, John 16, 21. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So Jesus Christ pictures his entrance onto the cross as a woman who is pregnant, as one who is in labor. He too has to endure the labor pains of a new birth. Nicodemus, you must be born again and you can't give birth without labor. So Christ has to be laboring, giving birth children to God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So that tells you that it's Jesus Christ is God also. <laughs> Jesus was in sorrow because his hour had come. But he looked forward to the joy of having the children that God gave him. Just like a woman, even though they're sorrowful because of the labor pains, they look to the joy of the child that they're going to have. And so the writer of Hebrews would say about Christ in Hebrews 12 too, Looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat at the right hand of the throne of God. And so Jesus had both sorrow and joy as he went on the cross, sorrowful unto death because of God's judgment, but joyful because of making the payment for his bride and being joined to his bride, the church. Joyful that he was giving birth to you and I. And also joyful because soon he was to be lifted up. It's there in Hebrews 12. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's same language of Christ being Lifted up. And so labor pains by women are a picture and a reminder of the suffering of Christ. They preach the gospel and the agony of Jesus. All things speak to him. 
and are about him. Now, if God is satisfied with the travails of Christ, because remember what the subject is, when I have been lifted up, you will know that I am here. If God is satisfied with the travails of Christ, Jesus must get his glory. And so God glorified him and said in Isaiah 53 verse 12, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus divided the spoil with the strong. But who are the strong? It is the devil. The strong man who Jesus Christ wrestled and bound to set his people free who were captive to him and left the devil holding to those who did not belong to Christ. He, Jesus, divided the spoil with the strong, not with a sword, but by pouring out, giving out everything, giving out his soul unto death. And in his death, he was numbered with the transgressors, that is the two thieves on the cross. But not only that, he was also numbered with you and I because we were the transgressors. So he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So we can't, knowing all that, we can't come up with a silly theology that you complete the work of Christ by choosing him. It's foolishness. He chose you. He chose me. Because he made you. He made me. And he saved us. That he may be lifted up and be exalted in our salvation. Jesus Christ alone shall be lifted up in your election, in your calling, in your regeneration, in your repentance, in your conversion, in your sanctification, in your justification, in your glorification. He shall be exalted. And this is how John kept his theology of the exaltation of Christ. This is how man shall know that it is he. Revelation 5. Revelation 5. This is the exaltation of Christ. When he has been lifted up in glory, all men shall know that it is he. We're going to go through the whole chapter. And that will give us another hour. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. That's complete sealing. Complete. Can't be opened. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much. Because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, 
the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked and behold in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden balls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on, on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them are heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Why? Because when he has been lifted up, all shall know that it is he. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you, praise you for the testimony of Christ. We thank you for revealing Christ to us. That we may know that it is he, our only hope of salvation, who accomplished our salvation. The one who opened the seven seals. The one who was found worthy to open them. So we say with the angels, we say with the elders, we say with all the denizens of heaven. That he is worthy of glory and of power, of honor, of dominion forever and ever. Amen. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel of grace. May you cause your people to love the things of Christ. May you draw them to Christ. And Lord, we pray, as always, for all those that you shall grant hearing to this message, that you may give them the ears to hear the things of Christ. For this is needful for the church of Christ. To know him and to love him he who saved them by his own blood. We pray and we thank you for all things in Jesus' name. Amen.